This is the voice of Carnage, and you are listening to Carnage Cast. Hi everyone, welcome to Interview with the Gamer. Today we're talking with Ben T. Matchstick, Dungeon Master at Large, and he's going to tell us about gaming in libraries and with the younger generation of gamers. Hi Ben, how are you? Hello everyone out there in podcast land. Internetville. Yes, Internetville lands, Sylvania. <laughs> so, you've been involved with uh, gaming and libraries for a while now. How did you get uh, interested in bringing tabletop gaming into a space like a library? Well, a library is an institution that already exists and has all these um, foundational systems in place. And I was fortunate enough when I moved to Montpelier in Vermont uh, to get hooked up with uh, the Kellogg Hubbard Library here. and. I walked in and I said, well, what kind of things would I like if I were a kid walking into this building? And so I got to bring in all of the geeky things that I did as a kid, comics books, comic books club, uh, board games. I started a board game library there, so you can actually check out about a dozen board games and take home and try them out, give them a spin, expansions to all the, you know, top Euro games. Uh, and then role-playing with uh, Dungeons and & Dragons, and I did... Uh, Playtest, a uh, nice event, playtest uh, with the creator of Mutants and Masterminds. He came up from uh, New Hampshire and gave a nice playtest um, to a bunch of kids. Um, and the D&D uh, started off as just kind of a handful of kids. I, I, at one point, I started running two games, Younger Set and the Teenagers group. Uh, and then it kind of spawned into that I was the master of Dungeon Masters, and I opened up all my miniatures and my tools, and I would walk around to like five or six different tables, uh, all running games, and kind of facilitated the games from that standpoint. And now I'm just kind of back as a volunteer and as a, as a need-to-know basis. I'm coming coming back now to introduce the younger brothers and sisters of those initial players that I taught. So kind of a way to pass the, pass the torch um, to all these kids who have just heard about it and kind of legendary stories from their their dads and their uncles um, about Dungeons and Dragons and it didn't seem like anybody's family like there's very few families out there that have the time to invest apparently into you know playing D and D with their their kids so I kind of took it upon myself to uh, you know get kids to learn this game and enjoy it in the way that it should be enjoyed. What in particular do you uh, enjoy about p- passing the the torch on like that? It feels really great when you can walk away from it and having played D&D with a bunch of younger kids and then to see them grow up here in town and how they're continuing their hobby and they'll just stop you on the street and they say, oh man, I had this great game last night, you know, and they'll tell you about it or they start their own group, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll, you'll see a poster up that says, you know, I'm doing a and d game at this the homeschooling, you know, school here in town. and and uh, Or you see kids coming in and picking up board games, you know, just trying to get that, you know, trying to scratch that itch all the time. I feel like you're just, you're introducing something into their world that, you know, may have easily been looked over because of the pervasiveness of video games and, you know, kids being isolated in, in this kind of paradigm of 
of playing video games where you're not having as much social, you know, encounter. Right. Um, so to me, it was great that you have this thing that is a very cooperative game. It's a storytelling game. It's imaginative. You're bringing out a bunch of dice and, and you know, miniatures, and there's just all these tools. And, you know, another reward to it is that you've got parents and teachers who are like, I can't get these boys to read, you know. And when I came to the library, it was my goal to really bring boys back into the library because it was primarily the users were like girls, you know. So I they couldn't keep the boys away at you know, after this thing got rolling, because these kids would come in and they were just voracious with the material. You know, I've always thought my philosophy about why, how boys read is different than how girls read. Like, girls may like stories and characters and get into the narrative, where boys may like a lot of technical things, you know, and mm-hmm. D&D is full of technical stuff that they can just, you know, try to wrap their minds around, you know, and, and of course, it's all monsters as well, so that helps. Right. There's actually one kid, a younger player, that came and said that he went back to his teacher. His teacher had, like, caught them all playing D&D, like, during class time. And uh, she was, like, instead of, like, being, like, talking to the parents, we got we to gotta shut these D&D players down, you know, that, that would have made it happen back in the 80s or something. But now the teacher, like, took it on and said, all right, we're going to play Dungeons and Fractions, you know. And the kids were super psyched. They got to invent the whole rule set. They modified the hit point system and made it all about the math problems that they were using. And if they solved the math problem, they got to, you know, do a hit on the beholder, you know. So I was, that's another little minor success. Wow. I've never heard of a teacher taking on a, what some might people think as a problem before like that. Yeah. I mean, I think it was really savvy of her seeing this, this entire group of boys that were just enthralled by this game and simply you know, with a couple of tweaks and the helps of the kids, they they got to use their miniatures, they got to roll dice and do math instead. Mm-hmm. You know, so they were just they were happier. You know, solving math problems. Yeah, they they framed it in a way that they that the students could grab onto. Yeah. Awesome. So, did you find you had uh, had to do framing like that when you were running your the games in the library, where you sort of had to frame it for kids of this day? Well, yeah, I mean, the you know, you you can automatically assume a lot of a, a big portion of the kids you're going to get are power gamers just by virtue of playing computer games and video games. So, you know, I really frame it as a storytelling game to start, you know, and then kind of the rules, you know, kind of trickle in as we play. And then some other like house rules that I always have is like you know, I usually tend to not, like, put humans up against the adventurers. You know, I try not to get people, I don't want the kids shouting stuff like, let's kill the guy, you know, or mm-hmm. always trying to make the, the monsters the most, you know, the bad characters, especially when you're dealing with younger kids and, you know, kids are pretty sensitive with parents and stuff. Right. So I'm always, always sensitive to those things. Um. No, there, there's lots of little house rules that I just started using, you know, like we are usually on pretty hard time constraints. So if I'm DMing something, I will kind of, you know, kind of push it towards a logical conclusion and usually in the favor of the heroes, um, but not without, you know, a certain amount of strife. Right. Um, you you mentioned, you know, making sure thing, things the, the, the players are fighting are out and out monsters and showing a concern for what the parents think of what's going on have 
how has that shaped the the games you run? It's not so much of a concern with the teenagers, but when you're dealing with the younger kids, um, I usually try to encourage them to take books home with them when they go, so that parents can look over everything that the kids are reading, and there's no like surprises, mm-hmm. uh, like the kids, you know, role playing and stuff like that, and. Um, you know, there's a lot of imaginative kids and they get really deep into it, you know, so when you're encouraging that, you know, I think it can, it can come out of nowhere that a kid suddenly latches on and like, it just like takes control, you know, and I've seen some of these kids that just suddenly they'll just start spewing all these rules and, and, uh, you know, statistics of all these monsters, like, oh my God, you really, you're like a sponge. You like, you, you have it all in there. You know, he's read through the monster manual twice, you know, and he's got it. it, it, They're voracious at this age, you know, so it's cool. And you want the parents to be involved. You know, I I, I think when I get the parents in and they drop the kids off, I'd be like, you know, you should get a character together and he should dungeon master for you. I try to really encourage them to say, you know, it's really easy. And, you know, often the majority of the time the parents blow it off and they're like, no, it's too complicated. I have no idea what he's doing, but you know, it's, just like anything, you just got to take some time and you know, be willing to spend some time with your kids to, um, you know, to grok it a little. Mm-hmm. And for the younger kids, you know, I, I modified the rules, the game a little bit. Like I leaned away from the powers for the younger kids and just kind of worked on basic attacks. Didn't try to complicate things too much. Right now I'm running the essentials uh, characters and they seem to be running a lot better. You know, I encourage a lot of tact. uh you know, strategic cooperation and um, problem solving and, you know, puzzling things out. And uh, I always try to integrate in some frame, some form a quest that also has an emphasis on conflict, not necessarily just uh, combat. Mm-hmm. So there's always some major conflict going on. They have to find out who's, uh, you know, who's funding them, uh, you know, who's underwriting the entire operation turns out to be the bad guy, bad, you know, creature, monster, whatever. Right. Uh, or, you know, how to forge an alliance with somebody. And then, I don't know, there's always some element of an overarching conflict uh, in the in the quest. So Yeah, demonstrating that it's not just bashing somebody with a sword. Right. Yeah. And they get a lot of that. That's that's pretty vital, I think. They really love that part of it. Yeah, one of the uh, key elements of role-playing games that advocates will point out is it can re- be uh, really helpful in teaching people sort of new ways of interacting and mediating conflict. Right. So going back to parents for a second, how involved uh, have parents at the Kellogg Hubbard been with these campaigns? Is it on an observational level? Do they ever sit down and play? Uh, I can't think of anyone who's actually sat down and played. Mostly I get it after the fact that, you know, summertime would roll around and, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd postpone D&D until the fall, you know, and put it off for the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dads would come back and be like, we just started playing and I had no idea what I was doing, but we had so much fun, you know, like when the parents just can't take it anymore and they just have to engage and get into it and, uh, I think it's it's just kind of a trickle down kind of thing, you know. That once they find out that their kids are genuinely interested in keeping it as a hobby, and you know they may grow into adulthood and still play this game, then they see it as an opportunity to engage. You know, if, is 
they don't they don't see it as a fad anymore. They you know they'll they'll jump into it. So yeah, it's mostly mostly after the fact and you know, after I've already made my initial dent in their psyche. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And and the parents' pockets, but pocketbooks, you know, because if you know, this leads to a huge economic boom for, you know, the game store in town and mm-hmm. toy store in town. They're all coming in to buy a new set of dice and buy the new new books or the new games. So I, I'm quite proud that it's led to you know economic development in downtown as well. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, where in Montpelier can one find gaming materials? Uh, at the Book Garden on State Street is a really great source for you know kind of high, higher end uh, Euro games as well as RPG, mostly Dungeons and Dragons stuff right now. But um, he's trying to expand this year a little bit more um, into other things. Um, uh, yeah, he's got graphic novels and dice and got a lot of Magic Gathering there. He has Friday Night Magic and. And I've done role-playing games there too, uh, through him. Mm-hmm. So he's the primary source. Well, that's uh, it, it's kind of a rare thing these days. So I, I, I hope it pays off in the long run for the book garden. Yeah, I hope so too. You know, one thing I wanted to tell everybody out there is, if you want to get involved in doing this kind of thing, that you know, you typically have to go through a. Um, a background check, a police background check, uh, to make sure that you're not some creepy guy. Yep. Um, you you do that, and that's the kind of thing you'd have to do with any kind of after-school program. Oh yeah, I should point out that I also did this as after-school programs through the Community Connections, um, which fosters you know, lots of different activities. That's um, a an organized program. Yeah, that's an organized after-school program uh, for kids. They do like a lot of outdoorsy type things and. They also host different clubs and then you know gaming. They hosted hosted me, hired me to play D and D for with teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the, the couple of things I I say like going into it is like you have to be aware that oftentimes you will get really disparate groups of people sitting across from each other at the table and like some kids who are homeschooled and some kids who are you know go to the public school system. You'll have girls from one side of the fence who want to tell the stories and guys who are trying to not play as many video games and getting into this new hobby. So I think there's, you know, you really have to be, you know, alert to those facts. And and D&D is a kind of, I think, role-playing games and D&D are the kind of things that can really make an impact on a young person's life. And I think it's up to you know, our generation to impart the most, the best possible um, hobby that we can put out there. You know, it's, it, you know, it's life or death for the game. You know, we want our kids to be playing this game. And we want their kids to be playing this game. So you have to really be sensitive of how you're teaching it and how it's played. Right. And the courtesy and the, you know, everything at the table that happens is our life lessons. You know, you're teaching just, you know, massive amounts of patience and cooperation and, you know, in-game and out-of-game. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of things that I really emphasize. And I do house rule, like, rewards for role-playing or for, you know, most valuable adventurer 
or player, you know, where they get an action point in the next session, you know, to use once they, you know, have made, made a, the most valiant and heroic thing was saving their fellow adventurer rather than going for the gold. You know, so really just have to bend the rules to make it that kind of experience. Yeah, because these are the years when they're learning, well, this is how it's done, and they'll, if they follow on in the hobby, that'll be the way they think about it for a long, long time. Yeah, they'll carry all those good habits, hopefully, to their game table when they when they take it on as their own, or yeah, you know, take college with them. Can you can you uh, talk some more about the times when you've had to sort of mediate between, say, the story oriented and the mechanically oriented? Yeah, it's it's not so much a specific thing. It's it's more, you know, like kids will sit down and immediately want to bash stuff, and it's up to the DM to really reroute that kind of expectation and to get them into a situation that's like, okay, now he's really trying to figure out who the characters are, you know, and once I put up a reward that says, you know, the more that you role play, the more that you'll get for the combat when combat does roll around. Um, so I would, you know, do things like, you know, have the, the funder of the adventurers just ask really deep questions of the characters, you know, and why are you adventurer? You know, what, what, what brings you here? What are your ties to the, to the town or the community or the intervale, you know? Um, and, you know, or why are you allied with that goblin, you know, and kind of putting them into these, backing them into these little corners where they have to like kind of explain their way out. Now, and, and also, making sure that they know that drawing a sword at the most at inappropriate times will not lead to good ends. <laughs> so they have to know when, how much they should restrain themselves in certain, certain situations. Mm -hmm. I think that is just as important, you know, like the, the, the go-to thing to get them all happy and screaming would be, let's fight a bunch of monsters. But, you challenge them, and if they step up to the challenge, you're just going to have a much more satisfying game. I don't know. You you've got doors that need to be breached, but you know a sacred circle that you know the dwarven clan has inscribed on the door, and so they have to be sensitive to these kinds of things. And I don't know. There's there's just it's so much more exciting even as a dungeon master to think of these little challenges. Yeah, sort of bringing. Uh people's motivations and cultures into the stuff that's going on around as opposed to it's, it's a door to kick in. Right. That really plays into when you're teaching the dungeon masters how to run the game, you know, um, you have to show them that it's about storytelling and there's elements of storytelling and that they should integrate things that they've learned in school, uh, you know, or natural, you know, uh, you know, in their uh, naturalist class or whatever, you know, anything that they can integrate from their world if they specialize in one area of expertise, you know, in school, they, they should integrate that kind of stuff, you know, uh, and to get the kids to develop these little stories. What, what sort of progression have you seen in people who went from new players to, to dungeon masters? What do you mean? Well, just, was there a, a progression you could observe or did they just leap in and emerge fully formed? No, there's a lot of, you know, struggling and, you know, a little bit of panic sets in when problems can't be immediately resolved, you know, and, uh, you know, having a full grasp of the rules is, is a lot to handle, you know, especially when players start to go amok and want to do all kinds of things that aren't, you know, that weren't planned. There's 
super simple things that you can say to them to try to make them feel more confident. And I've seen some really awesome young kids DMing games that are just, just great. And they come up with the, the coolest stuff, like just funny, hilarious stuff. And you'll see them like, you know, like the thief in our last session, instead of, you know, going in for the flank and, you know, backstabbing, he went into the flank and he picked the pocket of the, um, you know, the bugbear. And uh, he, he succeeded and the guy looked at him. He's like, what did I get? And at first the DM was like, nothing, you know, he's like kind of annoyed. And then, then he suddenly like lit up and he says, a slimy fish. And of course everybody's like cracking up. And then suddenly it's like when the bugbear turns around, he has something to say. He's like, you took my squishy from me. And he, you know, attack of opportunity. And the thief was vanquished. He totally critted him on an opportunity attack while the thief tried to flee. Um, he dropped to below his bloodied value and just squashed him. And suddenly we're all like, oh, my goodness, this is serious. <laughs> and this is the kid that's like his excuse for everything is like, I'm just playing my character, you know, and he's like not he wasn't participating in the strategy, you know, and, you know, came back and bit him. Mm-hmm. And it was our first character death. And we just kind of took a moment and we're like, you know, this is what makes this game exciting. Like you have the chance to actually suffer a brutal and vicious death. And it could come on very fast, especially when you're trying to pickpocket him with five hit points left and then proceed to move away from him uh, and you get a crit on the attack of opportunity. Like, these are the kind of things that make the game exciting. And I think it's that's something that kids also should understand, too, that, um, you know, it's about the story continuing. And if, it, if there weren't real threats happening in the game, then it wouldn't be an exciting story. So it's always that to-be-continued feeling that you want to leave them with. There's, a, there's one strategy that I put into use practically every time that I play with kids is that I will put some kind of, I will structure an encounter to have within it a, uh, a time framework. So over the course of certain rounds, um, a timed event occurs. So if I know for sure that players can, will probably only get five or six rounds in, then over the course of five or six rounds, this time event starts to elapse. Um, so like the typical example would be a ritual happening, you know, and every round indicates that we're getting closer and closer to the end mm-hmm. of the session end of, end of the actual playing session. So we always leave, you know, on a, on a, you know, with a with an end end note. Um, another really successful thing that I've recently employed is use of sand timers. I have two two one minute sand timers, and I put the player uh, to the left of the. Well, we usually do initiative around the table, so the player whose turn it is next is responsible for timing the current player's turn mm-hmm. using the timer. And if they go over their one minute time. Uh, they could potentially lose their turn or you know, some other effect or not get to make a saving throw or something like that. So those kinds of things really keep the game from getting bogged down and one kid who really wants to like, dig through the books and find the right thing to do. Um, usually when their turn comes up, they're really attentive to that structure of having to get their, mm-hmm. their turn in under one minute. Yeah, they're, they're learning to be prepared while the t- action's passing around the table. Yeah, 
What's your library gaming situation like these days? I know you were running a campaign recently. Is that still uh, going on? Yeah, they hired me uh, to do four sessions um, after school on Mondays for two hours. And then I decided that I had extra time and I continued for this Monday will be my last of the four sessions that I volunteered for um, that I'm using trying to trying to pass the baton of the Dungeon Master to the players. So I started with eight players, and now we're down to about six, plus usually have two Dungeon Masters and four or five players that drop in. Mm-hmm. So the two Dungeon Masters are kind of in case one, one can't make it, and because monsters get tough to run when you have a you know, handful of them, usually the one of the monsters is run by the, the co-DM. Um, yeah, that game has been going on. It's been really great. We started out with eight players, so I had these big kind of military-style battles on the biggest map I could find, you know, or the biggest map I could possibly make um, with lots of minions and lots of exciting things happening on the on the map, you know. Um, yeah, it's been great. It's been super fun. This particular session is just, we've got some great kids, and a lot of them come from different schools, so they don't know each other. They're making new friends. You know, some of the kids are homeschooled, so they're kind of desperate for somebody, some other kids in their neighborhood that have similar interests. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you can see there's great friendships being formed around the table. And you've got, uh, you're, and you're grooming some DMs to, to keep mo- everything moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Goes back to what you were saying earlier about empowering the next set to get ready to step up. Yeah, and I think this is a really cool time for the hobby as well because I think they gave it a really good try with fourth edition and um, you know, I think by and large everyone agrees that they didn't hit it just exactly right. Um, and that pissed a lot of people off. And they've been kind of honing it and tweaking it and I think they, they kind of got it right a little more right with four point five, like I would call the essentials. Mm-hmm. Comes up like 4.5, they've really like honed it in on what these powers are. And now that they're saying they're announcing the fifth edition, it's almost like you should just say to the kids, look, any book you take out that's about D&D or any game or novel that you read, that something you like about it, just integrate it into your game and like take the game on as it, as you know, one of the primary rules that D&D has always promoted is like, it's your game. If there's a rule you don't like, just take it out, change it, you know? put something in that you do like. Um, so I think that's really exciting now that, that you, you could tell them that the fifth edition is coming and, you know, D&D is actually looking for your input, you know. And you tell the kids that and they're like, wow, that's cool. I've always wanted to have the rule where, you know, X, Y, and Z happens, you know, or we can create characters that do this, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, really empowering them to take it on as a hobby that they can really own. Right. I think it's really important. Yeah, the the personal ownership because it's it, in you know in talking with people who who grew up with D and D, it's easy to it can be easy to sort of let the game own you, but it's important to teach people that they own the game. Right. Yeah, and there's really no use in arguing which way is better to play. If you're having fun, then you're playing right. You know. Yeah, it's the the rule of fun to go along with the rule of yes. Yeah. So Ben, do you have any uh, closing remarks you want to share with the audience about library gaming? In closing, like, we have these, this American institution of a great public library practically in every town, and they're looking for new energy. These libraries have 
time and space and sometimes budgets to, to lend their use to anybody. So even if it starts with you, you know, getting your own gaming group to meet at the library and then, you know, basically planting the seed to your fellow players that you want to host a kids group. And if one dungeon master takes it on to get their players to all, you know, go through the police background check and sign up and eventually lead a campaign to pass the hobby along to the younger generation, then I think all those opportunities are out there, you know, and it's just as important that we play games in public spaces and pass them on, I think, through the library because you're not beholden to any kind of, you know, educational standards or you don't even have to, you know, be an authoritarian when you're there. It's, it's a public building. If you have a player that's causing a problem, well, then, you know, it, they don't have to come next time. And what happens, you'll just get a culture there. Any kind of activity that's happening in public libraries is appreciated, um, especially if the fruitful uh, kind of activity that comes with, you know, great role-playing games. So I would I would propose to Dungeon Masters out there to go and plan a night a game night at your local library. Start with a one night one shot game night, and start with board games. You know, try to bring in families and do a bunch of board games. Have five or six tables set up, a bunch of games. Get a bunch of families involved. Put a call out for D and D players. You know, bring in the dads and the kids you know, to do a, a game, just do a one-shot, teach the game, and just kind of build support, you know. Um, get some of the books, donate some of your old D&D books to the library, donate some of your new books, all those fourth edition books that you're just dying to get rid of, <laughs> put them in the library instead, you know. It's really important, you know, even if you don't think the system is the, the right game system to, to put out there, it's more important that kids can be heroes again. And that they can uh, they can create a game that's their own. Um, I think it's the most it's it's just it's the greatest thing when a kid when a kid catches the bug. You know, you can see you, you'll soon remember why you did it. You know, because you see these kids, you're like, oh my god, that was me when I was ten years old. That was so me. It's like I can't stop talking about what the white dragon can do versus what the blue dragon can do. You know, that's the coolest stuff. And that's uh, that's an impressive roadmap you laid out there. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's ripe for the picking. People are people are hungry for for stuff like this. You know, it's a it's a great example you you've uh, made at Kellogg Hubbard. Well, I've been very uh, honored to work there, and the staff, of course, is cr- incredible, and they've been very open to the ideas. You know, once you once I started the idea and started establishing a collection there the floodgates just opened and suddenly I had some serious gaming collect game collections come my way. And there's, there's still closets full of games down in the basement of the Kellogg Hubbard um, that haven't seen the light of day. And they're just, they're going to they'll be there. And eventually the dream of having the game library will happen. Is there a place on the web people could find you if they wanted to probe Yoda for some advice? <laughs> I would venture to say that your listeners are probably um, uh, very considerate people, so I'd be willing to give out my email address. My email is bentmatchstick, bentmatchstick at gmail.com. If you just want to send me 
you know, send me some idea or notion that you want to run by me, I'd be happy to respond. Um, I love talking about games. You can also just find me here in Montpelier. I usually don't leave a five-block radius. Come visit us. Come check out a game from the Kellogg Hubbard Library. Come sit in the Children's Library and play a game with your son or daughter. It's worth it. Right on. Ben, thank you very much for coming on Carnage Cast. Hey, man. Thanks, Tyler. It was great fun. You've been listening to Carnage Cast, a production of NNEG LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit us at www.carnagecon.com. <laughs>